The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we gather together in fellowship and community with one another, and we recognize the presence of your Holy Spirit with us now. We praise you for your sovereignty and see your mighty hand at work in and through your people. Father, you have not created us and left us alone to live apart from you, for it is you that desires to guide us and direct us and lead us through all the decisions we make all the things and the activities we engage in day to day. It is only you that can fully sustain us and give us the strength and the perseverance to carry on. God, our creator, you have placed us here on earth as ministers of reconciliation to be used by you for such a time as this, in the places we live or work, and through the spiritual gifts you have given us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to live for others and not for ourselves. God of mercy, in this world fractured by sin, look upon us in your struggle as we sin against you when we want the things the world offers more than we want you, when our hearts are hardened and our eyes are fixed on comfort. In your mercy, Lord, save us from walking down the paths that we choose, those paths that may seem easier or less painful but ultimately result in rebellion against you and hardship for our loved ones. God, our Savior, we pray for others interceding on their behalf, just as Christ is our intercessor, presenting our petitions to you as a fragrant offering. We pray for the high school students and the leaders at celebration this weekend. Lord God, send your spirit into that place and transform the hearts of those youths. Help them grow into a deeper understanding of just how much you love them and what you desire for them in their life with you. We pray for our nation, our leaders, for the suffering in the Middle East, for the per persecution that happens throughout the world, for those who have lost loved ones, those who are grieving. We pray for those you now bring to our minds in our silence. Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who taught us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This morning, the sermon is titled, Living the Good Slash God Life. How do you define the good life? Is it taking a cruise, a week or two of total relaxation? Or is it taking a sip of that special vintage wine and the pure enjoyment of that first sip? Or is it doing something, not because you have to, but just because you get to? For some, the good life is a dream yet to be fulfilled. The dream of a happy family, the dream of owning one's own business, and the dream even of retirement. 
Yes, we've all heard it. We've seen it advertised. It's in our world and in our culture, the good life. Ah, the good life. Well, I can't define the good life for you, but this I do know, that the good life can be elusive, especially without the God life. And I say this because there will always be more and the want of more. We are very difficult people to satisfy. So when I was writing out the title for this sermon, it was originally Living the Good Life. And then I crossed out good and I wrote God. But theologically, that didn't work for me. If I believe that God is present in all of life, how could I scratch out the good? And then if I participate in what I perceive for me to be part of the good life, how could I believe that God was not in that as well? So I left them both together, the God slash good life, for us to look at this morning. Well, I've already told you that I can't define the good life for you, but what about the God life? What is that? Our scripture has a lot to say about that, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But persons outside of the church might answer that question, what is the God life, with, there is no such thing. Some might say, oh my goodness, that is very narrow and very judgmental. But still others might say, ah, it's just karma. We learned this summer in our sermon series that God life is a life lived as kingdom people in community with God and in community with the church. So how do we live the God life, the good life, the good news? Our scripture for this morning tells us, This is taken from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, so it is written for believers like you and I and for church just like WHPC. He explains that being a Christian is far more than salvation. It begins with salvation, but that being a Christian is a lifestyle. I once referred to this text as the Ten Commandments for Doing Church. And I think you'll understand that as we read Romans 12, 9 through 21. Listen now to the word of God. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. 
Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, I, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If, you're, if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our scripture text begins by calling our attention to the absolute primacy of genuine love. In fact, the whole passage is titled Love in many Bibles. You know how they title different paragraphs or topics? Well, chapter 12 of Romans, what we just read, is very similar in content and in structure to the love passage, 1 Corinthians 13, with its emphasis on practical lifestyle love. Several times in the past few years, I have preached the gospel of God's love here at Westlake Hills Presbyterian Church. God loves us, and out of God's love for us, God gave us his son Jesus so that we might be in eternal communion with God and with the saints. Love is the characteristic of believers because it is the character of God. You have heard it in the scriptures. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And again, in John 13, Jesus tells his disciples, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love is the greatest gift that we receive and the greatest gift that we have to give away. But where love is the overriding theme of these verses, peace is the normative principle. Neither one is necessarily greater than the other, but they must work together. Love is exemplified and acted out in peacemaking, and peace is lived out in loving. And yet the two of these cannot be anything without the grace that God first showed to us. And so we look at a theology of three pieces, grace and love and peace. In our text, the love statement here is followed by a series of imperatives, commands for you and I that deal with our relationships with other Christians. Nowhere else in Paul's literature do we find a more concise collection of ethical injunctions here. The first five verses contain over 13 of these commands and exhortations, ranging from loving Christians to showing hospitality. Each one could be a sermon of their own, but I am only going to highlight them for you this morning. 
Let's take a closer look now at verses 9 through 12 or 13 at how do we respond to our brothers and sisters in Christ. As brothers and sisters in Christ, as believers, we need to be surprised and revolted by evil. It does not say in our scripture that we should abstain from one evil and do good in this text. It also does not say turn away from one evil and draw nearer to good. What it says in this text is that we are to hate all evil and that we are to be joined together as brothers and sisters in Christ like glue with wood and that we are joined together to do good. We are to abhor evil because it's the enemy of all things that lead to Christ-likeness. In verse 10, the Greek term for brotherly love is used only here and nowhere else in the New Testament. Therefore, it says to us that we need to pay attention to it. It's special language. Brotherly love is a combination of words that actually mean family love. So guess what? Paul's talking to the brothers and sisters in Christ that are family. That makes us family, folks. Turn around and look at your family members. We are family. And we as family are commanded to treat each other with love and respect and to put each other as, up as more important than our own selves. And if we do that, we're probably even acting better than we do with our own family at home. As a child, I learned the phrase, energy begets energy and lethargy begets lethargy. I learned that from my grandmother. Now, I know where she got it because Paul tells us and warns us of the debilitating effects and results of lethargy. In whatever we do as Christians, individually and corporately as church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to put our whole heart and soul into it. Believers are to be alive and aglow with the Spirit. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are also called to serve the Lord together. This service is by no means drudgery. According to Calvin, servants of God should continually rejoice in their hope and maintain a confident trust as they serve. Now that's a pretty scholarly work, and yet there is truth in that. You know, this world will have its full share of difficulties as we read further down in our text for today, but the believer is called to be steady in times of trouble. And the community, the family around the believer, the family and faith is also called to be steady in times of difficulty and trouble. The realization for some of us and to some extent that life is an obstacle course keeps us from being surprised when things don't go as planned. You know, frankly, folks, plans might be overrated. Hold loosely to plans. As brothers and sisters, afflictions are to be borne patiently 
with each other and the source of our spiritual help, both individually and as the body, as family, is prayer. Prayer is a spiritual discipline for each one of us, but also as a community of faith. Be fervent in prayer. It is this prayer that shows the world that God has an active hand in history. The last verse in this first section of command instruction and how to treat each other in our family of faith is a moral responsibility of hospitality. Now, in a day when ends were scarce and weren't always desirable, it was, it was important. In fact, it was critical for the believers to open their doors and, and offer hospitality to other Christians and to the stranger as they traveled. You know, though, the circumstances may have changed, but hospitality is no less important for us today. Families are not nearby to celebrate birthdays and holidays and church days. Newcomers move into our neighborhoods every day and they don't know a soul. Elderly parents have been moved here by me and by many of you for our convenience and they feel displaced. Each of these scenarios can be blessed by the gift of hospitality, individual hospitality, but even greater is the hospitality of this family of faith. You know, hospitality doesn't come naturally, though. We have to practice it, and we have to teach it to our children, and we have to model it for the world to see. There's a transition now in our scriptures in verses 14 to 21 that some scholars um, believe is meant for the non-Christian. However, I will tell you that the majority of scholars do believe that this is for our brothers and sisters in faith, that this is a continuation of the first one with this caveat that it is for those of us and those with whom we have discord in the family of faith. What? We have disagreement in the family of faith? Do we really have arguments and disappointments and hurts and disagreement? Yes, we do. And so the words here are for us, in this family of faith even. Regardless of who the audience and who the scholars are debating this is about, We look at them today as lessons for us as we learn to live the God life. The Apostle Paul urged his readers to invoke God's blessing on behalf of all who persecute them. We also remember the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The principle here of non-retaliation for personal injury permeates the entire New Testament, and we need to lay hold to that claim. Non-retaliation for personal injury. It provides us here with the guidance when life brings up those who really don't care about us, those who have hurt us, 
Those, in fact, who don't even know us but have a negative opinion of us because we are Christian and what we stand for. And Paul reminds us to ask that they might enjoy the blessings of God. Christian family love inevitably desires the best for people regardless of who they may be, or so we hope. Our old nature says curse them, and our new nature listens. As God says, ask me to bless them. I must confess to you right now, though, that when my children were young, and I didn't want them to hear language from me that they would repeat, I would say to the speeding driver down Mopac, may you be blessed with a ticket. Right answer, wrong motive. But I also think it speaks to Paul's next words in the scripture, do not curse. (laughs) So my children grew up hearing a mother that did not curse, but cursed in her tone with the wrong motives. God's will is that the children, that all of his children become a family where joy becomes of one becomes the joy of all of us, and where the pain suffered by one is felt with all of us. The Christian experience really isn't one person against that big world out there, but it is about one great family living here together and living out a mandate to love and care for each other. So rejoice, people, with those who are rejoicing and mourn with those who mourn. And it's okay to weep. Paul goes back and he tells us that pride sows the seeds of discord. The tendency that we have, that I have, that you have, that the world has to regard ourselves as worthy, somehow worthy, of preferential treatment is universal in scope, but it's not acceptable. The entire range of personal conflict, which ranges simply from minor squabbles in our immediate family to international wars, often results from this misguided idea that somehow we are better than the other. Are we? I don't think that's what the text is telling us. Paul counseled us to live in harmony with each other. He also admonished his readers not to be proud because pride, more than anything else, can destroy the harmony in the body of Christ, the body of the church. The admonition here, folks, very plainly, is to get off your high horse and come to grips with reality. There will always be more humble tasks to be done, and ordinary people who need our attention and who may be capable of doing extraordinary tasks. To withdraw from the ordinary people or humble tasks is to allow pride to control our lives. And so we must, as Paul says, turn to our God to show us where we are snobs, and to seek forgiveness.
Moving on to verse 17, our natural impulse is to return injury for injury, but retaliation for personal injury is not, and I say it again, is not for those who claim to follow the one who told his disciples to turn the other cheek and to walk the second mile. Instead, Paul tells us and reminds us that believers are to be careful to do what is honorable in the sight of everyone. Folks, that means outside the church. What is honorable to the world? Although it is imperative that believers take great pains to do what is right in God's sight, it's also important that what we do, as long as it is not violating Christian morals and ethics and our theology, is well thought of by the world. We put God's reputation on the line because people know we're Christians. Every time we act in the world, we put God out on the line. So insofar as it is possible, we are called to live at peace with everyone. Wickedness is not to be opposed and righteousness lauded excuse me, wickedness is to be opposed and righteousness lauded. But as Christians, we have to be just really careful not to allow our allegiance to God to totally alienate us from the world that we are intended to share the gospel with. Even our deepest convictions must be expressed in a loving way. Jesus pronounced a blessing on the peacemaker. And Paul wrote that we are to make every effort to live at peace with all persons. You know, Christians are never to take vengeance into their own hands either. Rather, we must allow the wrath of God just to follow its own course. After all, it is written in our scriptures that it is for me to avenge. I am the one who will repay, says God. Christians are not called upon to help God carry out divine retribution. He has no need of our help or advice as badly as we may want to step into the middle of it and give it to him. Rather than take revenge, we are to feed our enemies when they're hungry and give them drink when they are thirsty. Verse 21 is a summary of the whole of our text. Instead of allowing evil to get the upper hand here and bring defeat, we can have victory against what is wrong by doing exactly what is right. You've probably heard it said that the best way to get rid of an enemy is to turn him into a friend. Well, our most powerful weapon against evil is good because good is God. To respond to evil with evil is not to overcome it, but rather to add to it. Our responses to unfair treatment and to hurt and pain by others really reflects the level of our own inner peace, love, and joy as believers. As the family of Christ gathered here, we are called 
to live as Jesus lived. Right will prevail against the wrong because God is on his throne. And although not all is right with the world in this moment, God is the one who will avenge the wicked and reward the righteous. That's a pretty long list, isn't it, in our scripture today? Commands to live the good slash the God life. You know, I don't know about you, but every time I read that list, I am completely overwhelmed. And some of you might be right now. I'm also embarrassed and humbled by this list. As Paul has said, what I want to do, I do not. And what I do not want to do, I do. So for me, there is no way I can live at the bar that has been set by our scriptures. And I'm guessing that most of you in this room have some of those similar feelings right now. But folks, I believe that that was part of Paul's intent to write. Not to guilt us, but to bring us to the realization that we are inadequate and seek God's forgiveness for where we have fallen short. We plead for God's grace in our lives and for God to be continually at work with us. The good news here is that God is near, God is quick to forgive, and God loves us enough to work with us. And when our living is transformed by his grace, God's own true goodness is revealed. I found it most interesting that the Greek words that are translated gifts and grace have the same root word. And when you put them together, it's a really powerful force. It means freely given. So God's Son was a grace gift freely given to us and for us and for our salvation. And once we receive that gift, it's a cost-everything commitment. And it's a lifestyle, as Paul has said. Calling Jesus Lord cannot be just a metaphor anymore. It is living right here, right now, as kingdom people who can freely gift grace to all of God's people and to God's world. Living the good life, the God life, it's really all about the grace given to us and the grace to be given away. Let us pray. Most wonderful, grace-filled God, we do thank you that you provide for us guidelines for living and then step in and help us to live into them when we perceive the bar is too high. It is clear through your word that you have a passion for how we are to live. We are humbled and unable to meet your standards. And yet you are here, forgiving us and offering us grace when we stumble and fall. 
Don't stop your nudging, Lord. Don't stop your guidance. And don't stop your love that leads us to growth and maturity individually and as the body of Christ at Westlake Prez. Make us your people and the church you desire us to be, living into your grace and sharing it with others. Amen.